Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the pediatric GI podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Peter Liu. And my name is Jennifer <laughs> Lee. I almost forgot. We are pediatric gastroenterologists at Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio. Yes, we are. And we have a full Nationwide Children's Hospital episode today. We do. Um, we're not biased. You know, we try to spread it out. Like, we're not doing this every single episode. I know, but Dr. Erdman's about to retire, and we really want to know just what's inside his fanny pack. So He's one of those guys that, from the very beginning of this podcast, you know, he's one of those, like, that guy has got to be on the podcast. He'd be so good. Yes, he's so funny. Yeah. He's actually on the trip that we talk about on the podcast yeah. right now. He's floating around in Lake Powell. Houseboat. Uh-huh. He also has a uh, long history of Erdmanisms. I remember one time we had a, con- a conference, a GI surgery combined conference about constipation. And uh, he made a comment about you know, it's talking about what do you do with a child with super severe constipation? This is probably like six years ago. So he gets up and says, well, this is the kind of scenario where you take your smallest medical student, put him in scuba gear and send them in. <laughs> it's like, what? <laughs> yeah, probably that, don't that definitely that happened. <laughs> that happened. All right. Well, That's one awesome. thing that we alluded to on the last episode was uh, we wanted to give some shout outs to people who gave us good reviews on Apple Podcasts. Because but we can't give shout outs to ourselves because most of the reviews are probably from us. I've actually tried to review it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why my <laughs> it doesn't show up. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. I don't know. I don't get it. But let's give a couple of shout outs. Okay, cool. okay, we'll do two since we've never done this before. And uh, we had said last time that we'll send people swag like our stickers, but that's for another day. Okay. My... I feel like we got to give a shout out to the first review ever. Five stars. Subject, great. <laughs> and uh, it's by Shif AK, who I think I know who that is. She was in my class. And it says, great so far. Congrats. Three excl- exclamation marks. Oh, very pop. I felt once that came out, I was like, this show is going to make it. <laughs> I mean, it's and great so far. You know, congrats. Okay, so I want to shout out to listener from the start. Fantastic to exclamation point. Great and has implications beyond pediatric GI. So healthcare providers of all types could listen. And I really do think we try to do that because some of our topics are really esoteric and more towards pediatric GI. But we try to be general so that med students, residents, parents, anybody can listen and learn something. Yeah. So, all right, as we alluded to, today we'll be talking to the one and only Dr. Steve Erdman, uh, one of the faculty here at Nationwide Children's Hospital. Just briefly, for those who don't know, he's a professor here uh, at the Ohio State University College of Medicine. He has uh, based his whole career really on uh, the study of and care of kids with hereditary GI cancer and polyposis syndromes. Uh, He's very involved in uh, the... Uh, organizations dedicated to hereditary GI cancer. And uh, for many years, including when I was a fellow here, he was uh, the program director of our GI fellowship program. Hmm. And we're going to be talking about his favorite topic, polyps. Polyps. Mm -hmm. 
Dr. Erdman, thank you so much for joining us on this episode of Bow Sounds. Well, I am just delighted to be here. I want to thank you for the invitation. Of course. You know, unlike the invitation the police give you with the little bracelets, this is, this is a lot better. This is a lot better. Yeah, you'll, you'll see. We haven't, you don't know yet, but yeah. Although we do be... some serious tracking. Like we know where you, your office is two doors down. Okay, okay. <laughs> So, all right. So the first question is really more for people who may not know you as well as we do. How would you describe yourself in only one sentence? I'm a husband. Mm -hmm. I'm a father and I'm a pediatric gastroenterologist that works at Nationwide Children's Hospital. I have had the pleasure of working at three prior institutions, two prior institutions prior to this, and have had colleagues and peers on both coasts. Nice. Okay. I don't know if you knew, but on Twitter last week, we posted like, hey, what would you like to know about Steve Erdman? And most people wanted to know about your fanny pack, but I didn't know you had a fanny pack. And so the question was, what is inside of it? Well, now you see, that is confidential information. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and I have used that um, as a clinical tool because we've had several delayed adolescents that needed motivation. And... It's interesting when you have a mystery about yourself like that, how that can work to your advantage. And of course, he went through it and, and there was this big depressing letdown at the end. And I said, but we can use your imagination now. Because you now, because there's only one other person in this institution that has been through this fanny pack, wow. you can tell people whatever you want. So let's yeah. come up with some ideas. You could tell them there were, you know, car parts in there. Yeah empty beer bottles, you know, you could, you could say, you know, space alien stuff, you know, whatever you wanted to say. Mm. And you could change that story however you want. Yeah. And then I got a gift one year from two of our former fellows mm -hmm. and it had dead chickens, <laughs> beer caps and ladies underwear in it. That was the, was that the Spider-Man fanny yes, pack? Yes. Yeah. Yes. yeah it's in, so, it's in his office. And so, and so it, it is. And, and I always thought it was G tube supplies. <laughs> Oh, is that not? No, nope. well, the reaction I, was I, no. I can't, I, I can't comment. <laughs> I can't comment. So, okay, one of the things, I feel like we can't capture all the things that Dr. Erdman is in one episode of a podcast. But, you know, in addition to your academic work, you have a lot of other personal interests and talents. Um, many people may not know that you create a, uh, you grow peppers and create your own hot sauce, which is widely popular with among our division. Uh, you have some ribs you bring every year to our annual barbecue. But one thing that I felt, obviously, when I was a fellow, you were my program director, and you've been the program director here for a long time until very recently. Um, so one of the things I loved was that every year you would take off about a month to hang out with your friends at Lake Powell in a houseboat. And it's just like the tradition that you followed every year. It, I think for the trainee, it's like, okay, people can be successful and still have a life and still like, like to have fun. Can you tell us more about that? Well, my very first trip to Lake Powell was uh, my uh, freshman year of college in um, 1974. And at that point in time, it was a couple of us with a lot of beer in the back of a pickup truck. <laughs> yet large bodies of water are very amazing and very attractive. And as my life changed, we would always go back and have this experience on Lake Powell, which is a very unusual body of water. Most lakes are round. This is the mm -hmm. flooded Colorado River. So it's 190 miles some odd long when it has water in it. And of course, as the water level drops now because of the 
ongoing drought in the West, mm. the length of the lake has changed. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's still an amazing body of water. Lake Powell can be up to 400 feet deep in certain mm. areas. And so now the lake's only 340 feet deep. So you can still imagine it's still a formidable and impressive body of water. Well, as people move along, they have an interest and are good friends invested in a houseboat. And so um, we will go and be the crew on their houseboat. And we go for, and, and because putting a body, putting a boat on a body of water that's 190 miles long, it takes you a while to get there. And so we'll mm -hmm. go 60, 70 miles up the canyon. And that's the beauty of being in the wilderness. There's no one there other than people on boats. And so you get to see the stars, you get to see the wildlife. But if you run out of milk, you're in deep trouble. <laughs> so you have to take a lot of planning and a lot of forethought. And mm. this has been one of those amazing experiences. So we go to the family cabin on the lake that moves. Yeah. How fun. It's incredible. Yeah. Every like year we like to see that shopping list. Oh, yeah. Probably 10 of gallons Costco. of milk, Costco. Oh, well. <laughs> You know, it is. And, it, and many people who do um, boating there, that's exactly the kind of thing that you do. And you have to sit down and say, well, how many cases of beer are we going to need? Yep. You know, That's the first thing you think about? Well, close. Toilet paper? <laughs> it's, it's, it's rum, gasoline, right. um, toilet paper in that order. You know, stuff like that. Sunscreen? Yeah, oh, yeah, sure. sunscreen, um, for sure. The boat went on the water in 94. We'd done it for 10 years prior to that. Wow. And yet... Some of the best advice I got was, you know, go where your job is because you will always have time and you will always have the ability to recreate. Yeah. And that has been so true. Um, we spend more time at work as adults than any other thing. And so right. you've got to find a job you like and a job you love because you will always be able to go recreate wherever you want to go. That's true. I totally agree with that. So let's start talking about jobs or work <laughs> okay. polyps, polyps. exciting topic it is a good topic so <laughs> we will be talking about colon polyps and polyposis syndromes today um but can you tell us how this particular topic became a focus of your career well i had started looking at intestinal adaptation with a group of chemicals called polyamines and of course those are two very esoteric totally unrelated topics there was one researcher um, at the University of Arizona that was dealing with polyamines and cancer. Mm. So I said, well, you know, this was my opportunity to learn molecular biology. I will work with this person. And it was an absolute perfect blend. And it's an example of why mentorship is so important in people's careers. And so as I'm busy dealing with dissecting um, uh, uh, chemically-induced rat tumors, um, I have a patient that comes to see me um, who, and of course, in pediatric gastroenterology, most people only know of three basic diagnoses. It's constipation, abdominal pain, or failure to thrive. And so if you don't know what it is, you just put one of those labels on and say, go see a specialist. So this is somebody that had come in with labeled as constipation and a 40% drop in body weight and walked through the door with a hemoglobin of seven. And so... As the workup developed, he had had four colon cancers that developed all at once. Wow. He was covered with these large pigmented spots and had been told he had neurofibromatosis. But in those days, no one could ever do the gene test. Mm. Well, he didn't make it to his 13th birthday Oh wow! and had extensive metastatic disease. And as mm. I'm trying to go around, I go, well, who can help me with this cancer? And I go, wait a minute, you work in a cancer center. Mm -hmm. So as we go over and we start talking... 
That was the only place I go, well, let me go see who I can find in pediatric gastroenterology that can help answer some of these questions. And of course, it's that scene out of the um, um, appliance commercial where the guy walks out the door and you're in the middle of the desert. There was no one. <laughs> and so I thought, well, is this a career opportunity since there's nobody dealing with this? And lo and behold, I established rapport with the people at Johns Hopkins. They tested for what was going on. And the only thing we knew that would do this at that point in time was FAP. And mm-hmm. so I found a researcher doing a lab in California. So we did genotyping of this patient to see if they had a mutation of the APC gene. That came back negative. Hmm. And 25 years later, as I'm starting to work with my other colleagues and I'm starting to develop interest, we find out that, lo and behold, this was a classic presentation for constitutional mismatch repair deficiency, where you don't have one of the Lynch genes, you have two. So it's the true recessive, homozygous recessive knockout disease. And so I was able to answer that question 25 years after I went to this young man's funeral. Wow. And um, it said there's no one out here having an interest in this. And so as I arrived here in Columbus, Ohio, people said, you have an interest in polyps. And I immediately had people line up at my office saying, well, I have two patients for you. I have one patient for you. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of people, it's intimidating and overwhelming, and they don't want to deal with it uh, based on the stories that they hear from these families. Many of these families will walk in and will say, well, you know, we've just lost several family members from advanced cancer. Or the more common thing that we'll see is that the widow brings the children in and says, I just lost my spouse. It was a horrible, horrible experience, and they died at 32. I don't want my children to go through this. And so we realize that um, we either encounter these in having one of those one of those holy shiitake mushroom moments <laughs> where you walk in and um, you're in the middle of an endoscopy and you have findings you don't expect, mm-hmm. or you find the other situation where people are going to ask you, please save my children from what my, my late spouse went through. <sighs> yeah. So, you know, so we're going to talk about those syndromes a little more uh, very soon, but backing up a little bit, kind of thinking about, you know, so all of us as pediatric GI doctors run into polyps in the colon at some point. But, you know, the most common presentation would be a child with some rectal bleeding, maybe prolapse of a mass that inevitably has been diagnosed as a hemorrhoid. And, uh, and then we do a colonoscopy and find a, maybe a single polyp. Um, so in the vast majority, we do a polypectomy and then we, uh, you know, verify the histology is consistent with the juvenile uh, polyp, reassure the family. But what things in that scenario would make you worry that it, there's something more. So this is a child without a family history or without genetic testing. You know, when would you start to worry that this is more than just a juvenile polyp? I think you, you hit the important things. Mm-hmm. Is this new in the family? Are there other people that have had polyps? Are there, um, is a history of cancer in your family? Um, and you will quickly learn that most people will say no. Right. And we know that, of children will develop a juvenile polyp. So they're very, very common. And the other thing we're now grappling and struggling with is this diagnosis of juvenile polyposis syndrome. Mm -hmm. Five juvenile polyps. That's all you need. And we know when we look at that phenotype, it often will come with a family history, in which case then we can suggest a syndrome. 
And that's when we have a genotype that goes with the phenotype. Mm -hmm. And so most in most situations, um, we clearly know what's going on, although we know spontaneous mutation in those two genes, um, SMAD4 and BMPR1A, are well known. So it's always possible to have a genetic condition. Mm -hmm. But of that large group of children that have five juvenile polyps, 50% of them will never have an identified mutation. They will not have a family history. And that's the group we're trying to sort out. We have a dickens of a time trying to predict, you know, do they need close follow-up? Yeah. What's the problem? What's their lifetime cancer risk? Mm-hmm. We don't have that data. And so mm-hmm. we struggle with that. In which case then you sit down and I, I like to phrase the term mom, dad, we're going to use the rule of common sense. And common sense is, is six years from now, if your child or your teenager starts having rectal bleeding again, it needs to be evaluated. If all of a sudden they start having chronic pain, if all of a sudden something stands out in their medical care that really is abnormal to you, then you need to look into that. And although I can't tell you this is a problem, I can't tell you that it's not a problem. And of course, this is where we have to also say, no, your child does not need yearly colonoscopy. You don't need to do those kinds of things on a regular basis. But depending on how the future leads for a child, and it may be in their 20s or 30s that this could be a potential issue, we always want to be uh, aware of investigating active symptoms or problems. And that's the best advice you can give that group of people. We will follow them up. And we've had several of them that they have five polyps and then you know, 10 years down the road, they still have not developed another polyp. Mm-hmm. Another group of them have developed, they will keep developing recurrent polyps. And I have one family where three out of the four children are growing polyps, and we don't mm-hmm. have a gene explanation for that. Yet. Yet. And of course, we're working on that. Mm-hmm. Um, we're very lucky here at Nationwide. We have a genomics institute. So now we're moving on to whole genome, sequ- whole genome sequencing for um, the affected child and both parents. And we do that in a trio analysis, which allows us the ability to look for things. And so we're now starting to ask that question to see if can we find something new or different that would explain this group of people that are above and beyond that. And of course, everyone's done the common sense stuff. We know that whole, that whole pathway uh, that um, SMAD participates in BMPR1A, the same pathway. They've looked at all of those genes specifically mm-hmm. without any clear identification in this population. So a lot to come, but again, um, I, I am, you try to be fair and thoughtful without being overly invasive or over-proceduring these kids. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. This is going to be a challenge, I think. So you already gave us several questions that often appear on the boards, and this episode will be coming out as a lot of our recently graduated fellows are about to take their boards. So for learners who are struggling to keep the various polyposis syndrome that can affect our children straight, um, how do you typically categorize the major polyposis syndromes, and what are the important characteristics that we need to know? Well, the more straightforward one, is Peutz-Jäger syndrome. Okay. Okay. And there's three hallmarks of Peutz-Jäger syndrome, particularly in the pediatric population. Well, they all develop the pigmented lesions around the vermilion border, lips, and inside the mouth called lintigans. They develop small bowel hamartomas, which are unique under the microscope because they have this distinct arborizing uh, connective tissue. And they all develop small bowel intussusceptions, and they bleed. And, of course, Mm -hmm. the third hallmark of this group from a lifetime standpoint is the risk of cancer. 
not just GI cancer, all of the genetic syndromes as autosomal dominant diseases affect every cell in the body. And the more we work in these areas, the more confusing and the more extra intestinal stuff we see that has awful problems. And that's why when I sit down with these families, I use that rule of common sense. If you've gained 60 pounds and you now have high blood pressure, that's a problem. If you have pounding headaches, that's a problem. Those are the kind of things that suggest problems. When you say massive weight gain and hypertension, the endocrinologist would say that's a uh, hormone-secreting tumor, and that's exactly what they develop. Uh, adrenal adenal cell carcinomas, all sorts of other things. So again, it's that common sense kind of an approach. Mm. So, And we know for Peutz-Jäger syndrome, it's one of the rarest of the group, but it's the one that has the greatest finding. And many times it's the dentist Mm-hmm. that will say, you know, you've got all these spots you need to go in. The other group that unfortunately refers to these patients are the surgeons because they're the ones that do the emergency surgeries at 2 in the morning. And they get in, they go, hey, wait a minute, there's this intussusception and this giant polyp stuck in this intussusception. So if you sit down and you say, you know, the board question comes in saying, you know, grandma died of ovarian cancer and dad has pancreatic cancer and the child's sitting in front of you, with spots on their lips, the very first thing you're going to do, and of course you put you know, three generations, multiple different tumors, and the right. classic lip findings, that's what the diagnosis uh, for Peutz-Jäger syndrome is. And of course the theme now is can we prevent the intussusceptions? And that's where removing the polyps by device-assisted enteroscopy is now the claim to fame uh, mm-hmm. to manage this population. They all are anemic as well, so those are the things there. Juvenile polyposis syndrome, we've kind of touched on, and that's the confusing one. That is an intermediate cancer risk, and we're trying to figure out what goes with that. We now know that you don't have to take the colons out of all these patients. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, serial polypectomy to debulk the polyp load is a strategy that allows you to buy time until these people get older and get older into their life. A familial. Oh, wait, can we back up for a second? So you said with juvenile polyposis syndrome, it's five polyps, but what if you have a direct family history of a parent with polyps? The number's different, right? Yes, that is. In other words, if you have a family history of juvenile polyps and you grow them, then you are a suspect Mm -hmm. and you you likely will be given that diagnosis as well. But that's the type and situation where I think that it's, it's much clearer. Um, and everyone in the family will be able to give you that. And, and like all of these syndromes, there are case reports out there of horrible things happening in the pediatric age group. And there are cases of gastric cancers and pancreatic cancers in kids with juvenile polyposis syndrome. So that stuff can develop. It's rare, but it can happen. Mm-hmm. When we, and and we, we broadly divide the polyp syndromes up into the predominant morphology mm-hmm. of what goes on. So if you have a juvenile polyp or an inflammatory polyp, that's categorized in one group. The other group, which is never normal in the pediatric population, is the adenoma. And um, the minute you find an adenoma, you immediately think of FAP, but there's now this expansive broadening list of disorders that will go with adenomas in pediatrics. And of course, we now know Lynch syndrome, which is the Mm -hmm. most common heritable form of a hereditary colorectal cancer can present in kids. And we've had several experiences with teenagers in our institution with adenocarcinoma uh, that have had that. And uh, there's a whole group of other that are, again, DNA repair-related ones, pole, pole D, uh, and then uh, mute YH. So there's a whole differential diagnosis for adenomas. 
The problem we are grappling with is what do you do with one adenoma? Mm-hmm. You know, no family history in one adenoma. And um, they've looked at this, uh, the polyp groups. And um, yes, there are, are people that study polyps as a group. There are national and international organizations that do this. And um, when we sit down at these groups and we ask this, the adults are dealing with the same problem when they find a 20, 30, 40 year old with a single adenoma. And typically, I will use the same thing. If there's nothing there, um, I will use the same criteria that you would do in an adult. That means we need to see, make sure you don't develop more. Right. Um, because, again, we can do genetic panel testing. We can look for all these syndromes. Sometimes you'll find something. Sometimes you won't. But surveillance and follow-up is always indicated. So if you have an adenoma and you're 18, you probably deserve a follow-up colonoscopy in five years. Right, right. Can we talk about the other end of the spectrum? So I distinctly remember a family when I was a fellow who had known diagnosis FAP, too numerous to count polyps, and they were prepubertal or close to puberty. Now I can't remember the details, but the question was timing of colectomy. And I know that was not a pre-question, but is that something that we can talk a little bit about? I think we, we can touch on that because one thing about FAP that is hard to apply to the other syndromes is that there is a a relationship between the gene mistake, the genotype, Mm -hmm. and how the disease expresses itself. And we now have roughly three different variations of FAP. There's the more significant aggressive form, and we know the area of the gene that's involved is the one predominantly in in the middle called the mutation cluster region. And that's the area that more specifically involves the regulation of beta-catenin within the cell. Those are the ones that develop thousands and thousands and thousands of polyps. That's the one that has an earlier rate of colon cancer. That's the one that seems to be more aggressive and far more virulent. Mm -hmm. There's a classic form of the disease that has some variation. And again, depending where else in the gene involved, you get that. And then when you involve the five prime or the three prime end of the gene, there's thought to be an attenuated variation where you grow fewer polyps and you may not need a colectomy. Hmm. And this then speaks to where is the gene mistake? The other thing, of course, that's very important with knowing the gene mistake is what's the family history. And um, I saw a family that was brought into our colorectal surgery center here where they brought in twin six-year-olds for colectomy. Actually, take the eight-year-olds, twin eight-year-olds. And I initially thought, that's way too aggressive. You sit down and you met the family. Well, there were five members of that family that had, had colorectal cancer under the age of 19. Grandfather had had limited surgery, and so he had an ileal rectal anastomosis, which leaves 10 to 15 centimeters of rectum. And so he died at 31 of metastatic cancer after having had oh, wow. preventative surgery. Mm-hmm. That, of course, led dad to a colectomy at 12, Dad had adenocarcinoma in his sample at the age of 12. So after I heard that story, when the surviving grandmother, as well as both parents and the dad who had had his colon at 12, came in and said, we want our daughters to have colectomy at eight, Mm -hmm. it's hard to argue against that. Right, right. And so family history is another very important driving point for how early the cancer's penetrant Mm -hmm. and what goes on in that story along with another side of that, what complications develop after surgery and FAP. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the biggest thing we worry about are a non-malignant tumor that develops called the desmoids, which mm-hmm. are a variant that develops in fibroblasts and connective tissue. 
They're not metastatic, but they're large, bulky, highly infiltrative. And when that develops compressing your aorta, or that blocks off a ureter from a kidney, or heaven forbid it develops in the central nervous system, those can be life-terminating events. As a matter of fact, that's probably tied as the second leading cause of death in FAP is desmoid disease. We have found patients as young as 10 that have advancing dysplasia. And this is a very important concept that goes back now about 15, 20 years now to the lab of Bert Vogelstein at John Hopkins University that d described this whole development, this evolution of going from an abnormal cell where you lose that second gene, you're already minus one gene, um, but when you lose the second APC allele, that is the initiating step for colon carcinogenesis. And so to go from a tiny adenoma to a colon cancer takes about a decade. But along that pathway, there are very important histologic markers, and it has to do with the degree of dysplasia present. And we know larger polyps usually have more dysplasia. So big is bad. Mm -hmm. So when we look in these colons and you see lots and lots and lots of little polyps, the odds are good, particularly in pediatrics, that that's not a cancer setting. But we always sample the larger, more angry polyps. And every now and again, you'll find a big polyp that shows advancing dysplasia, moderate to severe dysplasia. That's when you have the conversation. Yeah. Uh, for surgery. So it's the, it's the gene mistake, the family history, and then advancing dysplasia are the pretty clear hard stops mm -hmm. in this process. There's a lot of other soft stops that go into this. And prior to the Affordable Care Act, families would come in and they would say, at the age of 18, my child loses all of their insurance coverage. And because of this genetic preposition, predisposition, they will not be insurable. So at 17 years, 11 months, we're going to get our colectomy done so we can get insurance coverage for that. Hmm. Fortunately, now we have a lot more wiggle room. Mm -hmm. But yet, many times it's a life decision. I want to move on to college. I want to get this done now between high school and college so I can get over the surgery and get things taken care of. Other people will say, I want to wait four years. I want to do this when I'm done with college and I have my first job, then I can get that taken care of. But the critical thing is that these people need to be surveyed and watched to make sure that they don't develop something while you're going through that planning stage. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, one theme that uh, we've talked about this entire time, starting from when you described kind of that first patient that inspired your career, is uh, the change in how uh, genetic testing has transformed the care of these children. Mm -hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit more about how that's affected what you have, like the patients you see and what you do? And Well, you know, Peter, that is a critical point. And if I were to say, if I were to have one take-home point mm -hmm. for our colleagues that listen to this, it's the fact that caring for patients with polyps is a multidisciplinary art. Mm -hmm. And um, as a gastroenterologist, I am always on the steep end of the genetic learning curve. Because genetics is always changing, always right. evolving. And um, if all you do is genetics all day long, you follow the literature. And I think I'm about three to five years behind on making these discoveries when I go to the meetings. And so when I know I have a complex problem, I always, in our clinic, we have two cancer genetic counselors that help us with what goes on. And they're able to, A, get a clear picture. They're able to do a lot of the detail and background work. They're also able to help me order genetic testing. Mm -hmm. And of course, this 
you know, do you test a specific gene? Do you do a panel test? What methodology is used in the panel test? Why do we use this company versus that company? And it changes week by week by week. And so I think that when you're faced with a situation that does not make sense to you and is not clear, that's when it's important to involve a cancer genetics counselor that can help you in that process. Uh, we also work then very closely with our psychologists and social workers. Many of these disorders come with enormous psychosocial baggage. Yeah, sure. Um, and then the other people who are on our team is we have uh, one of, we're very fortunate, we have a, a, a adult slash pediatric colorectal surgeon who's mm -hmm. dually boarded. And so she's able to do surgery here at Children's and as we transition them to our, our uh, parent adult care unit over at Ohio State University, she practices in both facilities. So, so we're able to get that continuity of care, which is really what's important here. Wow. Yeah. So, and, and the cost of genetic testing has changed over time. So what kind of cost are we talking? Well, it's fascinating that you bring that up because that's one of the strategies that will go into what company you pick. We're very fortunate that we also have the federally funded program here in Ohio, as do most states in the union, that will deal with kids with genetic disease. So diagnostic stuff can be oftentimes covered. Uh, uh, the initial entry stuff is someplace in the range of $800 to $1,200, but there are companies out there that will say, if you find a abnormal mutation, and of course the term now that's used is it's either a pathologic mm -hmm. known disease-causing mutation or it's an actionable mutation that drives further decision-making. If you come up with that in one of your initial patients, for the next 90 days, we will test all family members for free. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. And, of course, that means it's site-specific testing, and yeah. site-specific yeah. testing is about $260. Meaning we find this variant in child A, child B, gets that specific gene tested, not the entire Correct. panel. Correct, because we know that if, and again, the place, important place to start with would be the parents. Oh, yeah. If parents. the parents do not have They're that, important. then yeah. they, that would mean that's a spontaneous <laughs> mutation. Right. Yeah, right. that makes see, sense. You see, this is, this is kind of mushroomed um, where we've started this process out, and we are, next thing you know, we're talking with genetic counselors in Idaho regarding peripheral family members that wow. have the same gene mutations. Yeah. So that's the important thing of what goes on. Hmm. The other critical event that you need a genetic counselor for is because you have to be prepared for three kinds of results when you do genetic testing. The obvious one is that, yes, we know this mutation. This mutation causes disease. No, this is the normal variation pattern present in humanity. So this is a normal variation. But then you find ones that you don't know what they are, mm -hmm. called the dreaded variant of unknown significance. <laughs> oh, it's right. different. But does it cause disease? Does it not cause disease? No and idea. This is where this is where you'll go back to, you know, uh, databases, and then you can do a lot of genetic detective work, particularly mm -hmm. in involved families where other members carry the same disease. And if you collect enough samples, you'll be able to see does this mutation track with those that have cancer and is missing from those that don't have cancer. Right. Right. So there's a lot of things that can be done in that situation, but oftentimes you have to be thoughtful and careful. There's the other way of what's called in silico analysis. There are that you, you're going to use the silicone chip in somebody's computer. Mm 
So there are biological models of what happens when you mutate or alter a protein. Does this make it damaged? Does this not make it damaged? So there's a lot of technique and a lot of thinking that can go into what do I do with this patient that has this uh, gene, that has this genetic variation. Wow. Yeah, yeah, clock is ticking amazing. too, 90 days. So you have to have a team available <laughs> right. so you can do yeah. this very quickly. Right, right. So again, you know, polyposis is a team sport. I have a uh, random surprise question. Surprise. <laughs> so this is kind of going back a little bit to, you know, your career development. So obviously the other big area you specialize in is uh, therapeutic and more advanced endoscopy. And uh, obviously for a lot of these polyposis syndromes, it's critical that we're that you're able to do small bowel enteroscopy, like double balloon enteroscopy. So um, did that did that focus like develop out of your passion for polyposis syndromes or how did that? Well, I've always, you know, you know, a large group of us as pediatric gastroenterologists are attracted to procedures. Right. We like doing it. It's a hands-on kind of thing. And so early on, I, you know, I said, I want to learn how to put in gastrostomy tubes. I want to learn how to band varices. I want to take off polyps. But what really drove this was one of our patients with Puget-Jagger syndrome who we knew had a polyp and we watched her intussuscept and in obstruct right in front of us. Mm. And um, she ended up having a intestinal resection, um, developed a bowel obstruction and a wound infection and six weeks later went home from the hospital. And if we could have taken that polyp out, um, that would have probably changed a lot of things for her as things went on. And so, and I uh, am very fortunate. I have very supportive people. Um, our division head, Carlo Di Lorenzo, heard this story and says, well, what can we do about it? I said, well, there's this brand new technique that was just released by Dr. Yamamoto in Japan in 2006. And I said, there's nobody in pediatrics doing this. Where are we going to come up with the money to develop this? Because it's a whole new endoscopic platform by another producer. So we not only need to buy the scopes, mm-hmm. but we need to buy the support. So we went to the development committee and made the proposal. And with everyone's support, we were able to buy our first set of scopes and carts and imaging material. And so we did our first Puchiegger patient here in 2007. Wow. Um, and we were very lucky. We had beginner's luck. Um, she was an uh, 18-year-old. And so we were able to do an anti-grade procedure going top to the bottom. Wow. And took out 18 polyps. And we brought her back six months later and did a retrograde approach up through the colon. And I was able to get to my dye mark. So it was a, you know, the very first case that we did, we were very successful and we went top to bottom in two procedures. I wished I could have continued that degree of success in this patient <laughs> population. Yeah. Um, but it, that's kind of how God this is going. We had a huge clinical need right. um, and we're facing a population with significant morbidity from their disease. And we were in a, a lucky position to be able to get that funded and developed. Yeah. That's yeah. incredible. Where do you see things moving in the future? Oh boy. Regarding polyposis. No pressure. Well, we just want to know what's going to happen. What's what I've always found fascinating is things get better and better and better and better and better. And, um, I have been trying to work um, for the last couple of years in the whole area of what can we do short of colectomy and surgery, and it's in the area of chemoprevention. And um, this has been one of these struggles uh, because trying to get things funded, and I've been with three companies now to the Food and Drug Administration trying to move ahead, and that has been an uphill battle because the Food and Drug Administration wants to know, does this really make a difference in these people's lives? 
And if the polyp is bigger or smaller, that's a surrogate marker. But does it change the destiny of these patients? Right. And so they have set the bar very, very high. And they also have used the world of oncology. And so if you do a chemo prevention trial, you want to know, does this alter lifespan? Does this alter the development of cancer or develop, uh, change the need for major aggressive surgery? And so like we've discussed for FAP, the need for surgery is all over. Mm-hmm. Some people might need it very young. Other people, we want to delay it and postpone it. So trying to come up with a chemo prevention trial that would have a robust, meaningful endpoint is almost impossible. Right. That would be a 25-year study. No one can do that. Um, but otherwise, right now, we're working on trying to develop other chemo, either, uh, other chemo prevention um, trials in other diseases, and we're working on one now for Putiager, and we think we may have it uh, have a uh, uh, one of the drug companies interested in funding that. That's going to be a long haul as well, because not only do we need to come up with a meaningful trial protocol, uh, trial protocol, but we also need to make sure that the Food and Drug Administration is in agreement with that. For Putiager, it's a different endpoint because we have an- antisusception and we have anemia, which are both objective markers that we could build into something like that. Mm-hmm. So um, more to follow. But that's one of the things that kind of keeps me connected. I'm trying to slow down. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, it's uh, uh, going to be one of the things that keeps me going for a while, I think. So it's it, it's all good. Let's just put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Things are looking up. Okay. You'll be writing grants and proposals from your riverboat. <laughs> well, that's a thought. <laughs> Lake house. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Lake house. Something <laughs> like that, yeah. So, all right. So one question we've been asking all of our guests. Um, so looking back at your career thus far, since it's not over yet, what has been the most valuable advice you have received and what advice do you have for our listeners? I think it's Confucius that said, if you love your job, you will never work a day in your life. Mm -hmm. And um, I was also given that by my mentor. And I think if I were to say one thing, and and you can look back on many of the very successful people uh, in pediatric GI, they all received the benefit of mentorship. And mentorship isn't a one or two year deal. Mentorship goes on for decades and decades. And um, finding a mentor that can help you and guide you and kick you in the butt and tell you you're heading in the wrong direction, um, I think can be very, very meaningful and very, very helpful. And um, I found my mentor later on in my career, and I'm still actually collaborating with him now. So we've had a relationship for 28, 29 years. Um, And I think that is one of the most important things that you can do. Now in the world, uh, new world, you can mentor long distance. You can mentor by telephone. There's all sorts of things you can do when you're really not sure of where I want to go and what should be on my proactive plan. Mm -hmm. Oftentimes we find ourselves deep in the weeds and all we're doing is we have a reactive survival plan for our careers. That doesn't get you anywhere. You need a proactive plan to move you forward. Um, How am I going to make my career meaningful and gratifying? And there are so many different ways to do that uh, nowadays, but you've got to have a plan. And mm. I think that comes from from mentorship and finding someone to support and work with you. Yeah, that's, that's really good. So, and then the other thing is is find a job you love. Yeah. Um, and you know, w- here in at Nationwide, we have we're, our division is so big we're on two floors. And there used to be a term here when I got here in two thousand and one, we you'd go up and down the hallway. 
And when we would go up and down the hallway, you'd have your eight or nine colleagues that were right next to you. And when you'd look down the hallway, you'd say, well, how many people have been here their entire career? Mm-hmm. And very few people would do that because mobility and flexibility is the name of the game in any kind of an academic or engaging kind of an environment. So people change jobs and you should change jobs for opportunity and to make yourself more happy and more productive. Mm-hmm. And so don't be afraid to do that. Um, and I think that was some of the advice I was given. We came to Ohio in 2000 and I thought, well, we'll be here for three or four years. I'm starting my 20, I started my 22nd year here <laughs> in uh, September, or yeah. actually in July. Wow. So you, you want to find a place uh, that you enjoy what you do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's great. You know, when you start out as a junior faculty in your first attending job, that may not, that's probably not going to be where it's at for you for the rest of your career. One of the, uh, another great piece of advice I was given when I was a fellow was by the PhD nutrition administrator that was running the nutrition center there, a lady by the name of Ann Grangine. And she said, always be looking for your next job. And I go, wait a minute, I just got here. Why would I want to look for another <laughs> new job now? And it's not so much that you're looking for a job but you are prepared and you are flexible and you're up to date. Your CV is always updated. You maintain your national connections um, because that's very important in any kind of an academic environment. And of course, the way we maintain our connections, the way we network is by going to meetings and by maintaining contact with our people, by being supportive. People ask us to collaborate. So you've got to be able to um, reach out and uh, make a connection with your peers and colleagues. Great. So I've really learned a lot, had a great time having this conversation with you, Dr. Erdman. Do you have any final words for our listeners? Oh, boy, we've said so much already. You'd have to give me a second to try to see what I can come up with. Um, Go to the meetings. I think that that's a very important thing to do. I remember starting out when NAS began when it was um, probably 40 people in one room. Wow. And many of the founding members of this organization are no longer with us. Mm -hmm. If you think back, you can oftentimes trace yourself back to some of those very, very early people in the 70s and 80s that started our profession. This is who you meet when you interview for jobs or when you go out and you uh, go to the national meetings. That's where you meet these people. So uh, I think get your vaccinations, wear your masks, and come (laughs) to the meetings. Go to Nashville. Yes, excellent. All right. Thank you so much once again for joining us. I feel like we could talk for another hour at least, but we'll have to stop. Okay. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. You guys take care. If you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at at Sounds and on Facebook at at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. And if you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all of the following three things. One, tell a person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts to help others discover the podcast. And, and so you get a sh- shout out. Get a shout out. And three, on our Buzzsprout page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the NASPGAN Foundation. You can also get there through www.naspghan.org. The money you donate helps support some of the amazing things the Naswigan Foundation is doing, including supporting pediatric GI research and public education programs. As always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the hosts and guests and are subject to change with advances in the field. Bye for now. Bye.